Support for Under the Radar comes from Wellwithall. Wellwithall believes that self-care is community care. Premium products crafted for your daily wellness, from sleep support to heart health to your daily regimen. 20% of Wellwithall's profits are committed to leading the fight for health equity. They won't stop until it is truly Wellwithall. Under the Radar to me means authenticity, not being filtered. It's a window in on the local stories that touch our lives. And there's a huge void in the traditional media covering this new faces of Boston. You may not be looking for a particular story, but when you hear about it, you're engaged. Under the radar means ahead of the curve. It's also perspectives. How does this particular story affect a community or a neighborhood? I'm Callie Crossley. This week on Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, it's the season for giving. And what could be better than giving a gift that also helps someone else? Fair trade and social enterprise gifts are becoming trendy, benefiting people all around the world, from assisting with clean water philanthropies to providing people with living wages and safe working conditions. It's gifts that give back. Later in the show, rye flour in Christmas cookies, pasta makes a comeback, and the best beverages to serve to your guests this holiday season. I always think about mulled wine. It's red wine, it's lemon, it's orange, clove. Keep it nice and warm all day, and it smells great. It's just there's no right and wrong way to do this. Our food and wine gurus share the latest holiday culinary trends. But first, joining me in the studio, Dave Spandorfer co-founder of Janji, a running brand that contributes directly to clean water efforts for the country represented in each of its collections. Hello, Dave. Hello, great to be here. I'm so glad to have you. Jules Pieri, co-founder of The Gromit, an online marketplace and product launch site for unique, undiscovered, and innovative items created by makers, innovators, and entrepreneurs. Welcome, Jules. Thank you, Kelly. Glad to have you. And Glenn Witten, manager of 10,000 Villages and Downtown Crossing. 10,000 Villages is a nationwide chain that sells handmade, fair trade gifts from around the world. Hello, Glenn. Hello, Kelly. Well, this is a conversation I am so delighted to have because I know 10,000 Villages and I know the Gromit. I can full disclosure say I have been at all of your places (laughs) online on the Gromit and in the stores of 10,000 Villages and will certainly be for you too, Dave, and Janji, because it's just a delight to see how fabulous the products are and to know that they have a double purpose. So we're talking about gifts that give back. I think so many times when we hear these stories, we think, was that something you thought about afterwards? And actually, what I learned from all of you is no, this was part of your plan to begin with. So start with you, Dave. Tell me how Janji came to be. Yeah, so we started Janji back in college. So my co-founder and I were both teammates in college. We were in track together. And, you know, one thing that running as part of a team lets you do is you feel like you're part of a community. And feeling like you're part of a community and part of a team allows you to go farther. It allows you to go faster. And what we noticed is that with the gear that you purchase, there's really nothing that allows for that community and that team spirit to continue. There might be races that go for a cause, but there was really nothing fundamentally in the gear itself that allowed something special to happen. And so we applied for a business plan competition in college to create Janji 
whose goal is to give back clean water with every purchase and to make it seem like, you know, instead of running on the Charles River in Boston, you're running through a marketplace in Kathmandu or you're running through Lima in Peru. You know, you're running for something bigger, better, and you're also running as part of a community. So tell everybody how young your business is. It's pretty young still. It is, yeah. We're just a few years few years old. We got this started in St. Louis in college, moved to Boston, where we really helped launch this thing, and now we're in over 200 stores around the country. So going from one of the youngest businesses around the table here to one of the oldest, 10,000 Villages, which I've known about for years and enjoyed, I didn't realize it was as old as it was. Tell us about that, Glenn. Yeah. Yeah. We were founded in 1946 by uh, one woman. Her name was Edna Ruth Byler. Our story goes back to her being in Puerto Rico, where she met a group of women who were doing handicrafts. They were doing needlework, and they talked to her about selling their products back home in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania, where she lived. And so she bought some and sold some to friends and family, and she ordered more from them and sold to church fairs and festivals. Next thing you know, she's wholesaling and uh, buying from uh, artisans in Haiti and then buying from Palestinian refugees. And next thing you know, we've got a business. We like to say our first home office was Edna Ruth's basement, and our first store was the trunk of Edna Ruth's car. (laughs) And now we're about 60 stores nationwide, as well as our 10,000 Villages Canada sister organization. And we've been at it for years now. And the foundation of it is that you find the artisans and negotiate a fair price for them. Well, more mm-hmm. more to say, we every purchase begins with a conversation. It's not so much a negotiating a fair mm-hmm. price. They establish a fair price. They tell us what they need to pay for materials to make the item and also to pay individuals to work on it. And sometimes we can't buy it because the price would be such that no one in North America would likely buy it. So we don't then, like a mainstream retailer, just say goodbye and go to the next seller. We have a commitment to each group that we work with. So we go to the next product or we work on them with product design to make it something that we can sell in North America. And uh, that commitment to working with the same artisan groups year after year, often decade after decade, helps them out in planning for the future and growing as organizations. We work with well over 100 organizations in about 30 developing countries around the world. Okay. So, Jules, the grommet is not as old as 10,000 villages. It's young at John G., somewhere in the middle. But, boy, you've been making a presence. And now the only thing about this conversation I don't like is some of my friends will know where I find <laughs> those unique <laughs> gifts. They're always asking, and I say, oh, just around. <laughs> Anyway, tell us about uh, the grommet and how it works. Yeah, we started in uh, 2008, so that makes nine years. And it's funny, before we started, somebody, a potential investor, expressed that worry. Do you Uh, think nobody will want to share the secret of the grommet? It's like, no, come on. But there's some truth to that. We we do see that in our research. And the reason is why he could see that, why you say that, is that we are always discovering what's next in terms of young, innovative companies and products. So way back a long time ago, we discovered Fitbit and SodaStream and Bananagrams and products that you might, you know, anybody listening might know. And what we're discovering today would be those products in the future. But we started with the premise was it's not all about the product, it's about the company too. For something to be a grommet, 
it has to have a beautiful, wonderful product that solves a problem in a new way or a technology that's fresh. It has to really work. But then we, we knew that there would be an audience where people would say, okay, but what's there there? What does this company do in the world? What's its impact? And so one of the components of impact is social enterprise. It's one of the business models that we saw emerging. And we thought, in t- my co-founder and I in 2008 could see the impact of the economic crisis and our concern about large enterprises and large institutions that were letting us down. But we knew small business wouldn't do that. We knew small business always is fighting for right in many segments. So we thought, we'll find those companies, those products. And while you search on our site, we started only online, buy the values you care about. And one of them is social enterprise. So one of the things that I think people are very interested in is what we saw happening as we began to prepare for this piece. And that is a lot of people really are just not satisfied with a purchase. It can be really fun. It can be really trendy, but they want something more. And I'd like each of you to address this. I'm going to start with you, Dave. Talk about why Zhangji and what you are doing with your products really appeals to people. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So when a runner goes out for a race, so often they're racing for some sort of cause. And yet they put on so often a black pair of shorts that looks like every other black pair of shorts. There's nothing distinguishable about it, and there's nothing that goes back toward something bigger than themselves. And I think what people want when they're buying gear in today, in an era in which there's a million different options, either online or in stores, they want something that has meaning in this story and that's something that they want to wear for year after year after year. And so when we created Janji, we wanted to have that story and that quality and that impact be within each piece itself. And so whether it's you're buying it for yourself and that pair of Nepal shorts that's, you know, not just a plain black but has all these interesting colors from Nepal and they're inspired by Kathmandu, and that allows you to run farther and it runs faster. Or if you're giving it as a gift where there's something impactful beyond just, you know, a simple piece of clothing, I think that very much is the future of retail, and that's what we're noticing with our customers. And to know that they're, while they're running and wearing this beautiful gear, that somebody's getting some clean drinking water, which water, exactly. by the way, is a number one issue in the world. So Absolutely. this is huge. Yeah. Same to you, Glenn. You've been around longer, but still, what is it about that story that people are, and particularly seem to be looking for now? They want more. They do want more. The item has to be something. If we're selling an item, it has to be a beautiful thing or, or a useful thing. But it has to have that story. Um, For a lot of people, that's the difference between a store like ours and, well, you can name any brand, but (laughs) I'm just looking at some of the things I have in front of me here. A pair of earrings, which are an elegant pair of brass earrings, uh, which are made from recycled bomb casing in Cambodia. Wow. And you can see it when you tell people about that, that it's still difficult to do any farming in parts of Cambodia because... The landmines are still there, and as they dig up the landmines, they find all these bombs that were dropped on them by, well, by us Mm. quite a while ago, and this particular group turns them into beautiful things, like these elegant earrings which have the word peace etched on them in Khmer, and you can see that that affects people, and they want to buy this as a gift and tell the story themselves. It does more than just fulfill the need of, of being pretty. It is that, too. Right. Yeah. 
And I have to say, just personally, I know that you have any number of seasonal items that do the same thing right now. I bought any number of nativity scenes from 10,000 Villages, and they're so crafted so beautifully, and they speak to the place. They do. uh, And the craftspersons, you know. Yeah, I mean, um, just thinking of Peruvian nativities, we have a lot of those this time of year. And it's adorable, actually, to see a small uh, nativity, and, and little nativities are something that we get a lot of from Peru, where you look very closely and you realize that baby Jesus is wearing a chula hat. Yes. I yes. mean, it's going to be cold. So He's going to need a cultural. hat. It's very cultural. I love yeah, it. It is. <laughs> and, and, the, and sometimes the sheep is, well, now it's a llama. llama. <laughs> uh, you know, or the ones we get from the West Bank near Bethlehem, which are made of olive wood, which mm. it's just very much of the place. That's right. All right, over to you, Jules. The stories behind some of your products are really quite outstanding. I'm looking in front of you, and the the lucky fish is a good one. Yeah, (laughs) so we look at 300 ideas a week, and we launch five to eight. And there's always a story to be told, and we produce an original video about every company that we work with. Which I have to say is very helpful those videos. Thank you. Uh, yes, because people you. can see, oh, that's how you use it, or that's how I could use it. We, yeah. <laughs> we want you to be happy. Yes. So, yeah. you know, it's this big, not that big, yeah. and, and we try to prevent disappointment. So the Lucky Iron Fish, what you're talking about here is a health-related social enterprise because a, a lot of people in developing countries don't have enough iron in their system and in their diet to be healthy. So this is a business model that's quite common in social enterprise, a buy one give one. So the iron fish, it looks like a fish. And for, you know, somebody in a Western diet, say an athlete, actually, Dave, might often be running low on iron. Children and women often are. Um, You put it in whatever liquid food you're making. So if it's a cup of tea or a pot of soup, and it adds the extra boost of iron. And that same fish is given to a person in need in in another community. And that's a very... wonderful way to provide a uh, health benefits. I also find that economic opportunity is another way these businesses like to work as well. Our first social enterprise was Crazy Aaron's Thinking Putty. That's pretty, I mean, it's really interesting, you have to say. It's a, yeah. It comes in a tin, and it's a putty that Aaron himself didn't even realize how many fidgeters there are in the world, especially kids in classroom or people with, you know, just the kind of need to channel. And he was just making it for fun and uh, making it for sort of a geeky crowd. And we broaden its story, but the part I'm most proud of is his way he creates opportunity. We were talking to him about his business, and he kind of quietly revealed, we noticed in his videos, that most of his workers had some sort of disability. And he never mentioned that to us. We were interested in the product. But then we were like super interested. No, I don't even want to talk about that. I've never used that as a marketing ploy. I said, well, we're not going to use it as a marketing ploy, but let's just show your workers because that's what you're doing. You're talking to them in the video. Tell your story. And so that's what I mean, access to opportunity. That makes a difference. All right, I want to tell everybody who I'm talking to. You were just listening to Jules Pierre. She's co-founder of The Gromit, an online marketplace and product launch site for unique, undiscovered, and innovative items created by makers, innovators, and entrepreneurs. Also joining me is uh, Dave Spandorfer. He's the co-founder of Janji, a running brand that contributes directly to clean water efforts for the country represented in each of its collections. And also with me, Glenn Wooden, manager of 10,000 Villages in Downtown Crossing. If you're 
you're just tuning in, this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley, and I'm Callie Crossley, and we're discussing gifts that give back this holiday season. I found this interesting quote from Khalil Gibran, and I thought of all of you. It says, all you have shall someday be given. Therefore, give now that the season of giving may be yours and not our inheritors. I think it's beautiful. Mm. It speaks to what each of you are doing. Dave, I want a little bit more about the beautiful jacket that you have brought, the runner's <laughs> jacket, because I run not at all, let's confess, but it's gorgeous. <laughs> but you got friends. You got friends who are friends, runners, exactly. But I also yeah. wanted to raise that you do uh, athletic wear, but also what we now call athleisure, Absolutely. which is that for those of us who are not running, but we're trying to be <laughs> cute while shopping or living our lives. So really talk to us about how the culture of the place that you're in and delivering clean water to shows up in the outfit. Yeah. 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 Absolutely. So what you're what you're talking about is the Nepal Glacier Windrunner. And this piece here, like you were saying, is inspired by Nepal. And it has fabric handwoven in a women's cooperative. Thank you. In a women's cooperative in Kathmandu. And what this highlights is a little bit of inspiration, a little bit of, of Nepal in the piece itself. It has a hood for those runners who like to run in the sleet and in the snow. It's very um, lightweight. It, it is, it is. Yeah, it is. Yeah. But it's meant to be an outerwear because let's mm-hmm. be honest, you know, as you're running, you're sort of heating up, whether you're training for the Boston Marathon or you're going for a two-mile run in January, your body just does heat up. It does have a breathable mesh in the back that allows you to sweat. And I think the big impact, sort of what you were touching with, is that this has 10% of sale going back toward funding a clean water project, specifically in Nepal. And with that, you're talking about two and a half years going back of clean water to somebody in Nepal with every time someone buys it. And whether you're an athlete or you're a runner uh, or you just want to wear this around to sort of highlight what you care about and what your values are, that's sort of what we want with Johnji. That's what we want, whether it's this jacket or it's a shirt or it's a shorts. There's a significant story behind there, and it raises awareness for something that affects over 700 million people around the world, and that's a lack of clean water. So we're going to put uh, these products up on our site so you can see what they look like. And just to mention that what you do is that when you move to a different country, you give the water back to that particular space. So each time you have a new product with that features some of the cultural aspects of that place, you give back to that country. That's exactly right. <laughs> yeah. So for every season, we go to a different country. We meet with local artists, we meet with local fabric makers, and we design a line around that that funds clean water projects. So I learned a term um, while reading an article in Forbes about actually Paul Newman and how his charity works, which is a 100% giveaway. It's called Conscious Capitalism. So I would think that this that all of you fall under that umbrella of conscious capitalism. You know, you're a business. You're making money because that's how you survive in the marketplace. But there's a consciousness about it that has something else going on. Uh, so I wanted to put that on the table. And I want to ask if you agree that that seems to uh, describe who you are, Jules. Yeah, I thought actually Glenn said something in, yeah. the, in the very top mm-hmm. of the show that was um, really central to that in that he talked about how... 10,000 Villages knows all of its collectives Mm. and all of its partners and sticks with them for decades. And if you're going to be a conscious consumer, you have to care and support, care about and support retailers like that. Because if you're, you're buying, say, on a nameless, faceless site like Amazon, the buyers there have never met the people producing the products. The products are priced and managed by algorithm. And they will put you in business and out of business as quickly as it suits them. Whereas 
Glenn's business or our businesses and, and what Dave would hope for in terms of a retailer are sticking with these makers, with these companies who are creating jobs, creating ethical products, creating valuable products that are not mindless consumption products. And so I think as consumers, we have to start there. What do we really care about? And that determines where you shop, not just what you buy, but where you shop. Um, tell me a story, Glenn Whitten, of uh, 10,000 Villages Downtown Crossing, of the impact on the people that we may purchase the gifts in your store. So we, we go to get the handicrafts. What's the impact back at home? Well, I just talked about uh, what Dave's John G. is doing in terms of the clean water for that country. But just just one story. Well, one story. I'm thinking of, uh, of a woman named Nani Bala, and she works at a group called Bagda Enterprises. This is a story told to me by a former CEO of 10,000 Villages years ago, decades ago. He was working in development, and uh, he was asked to go to the village of Bagda because they wanted to perhaps start a business. They had limited resources in development, so he had to go see if, if they could and if they were poor enough. They went to Bagda. It was a difficult trip. There were no roads there. They had to take boats and walk in long distance. And right away, they could see it was a very poor village. This is in Bangladesh, I said. And it's the roofs were grass and things like that. And there they met a woman named Nani Bala, who was going to be one of the leaders of the group, a young woman. And they did the tour of the village. And as they toured the village, behind one of the huts, there was a, an old woman, an older woman lying on the ground. And they said, who's this? And she said, this is my mother. She has been ill, and there's only so much food. And she's decided to stop eating so that others can have, which affected them, obviously. They stayed the, in the village that night in Nanibala's house, and when they got up, they found out that Nanibala's mother had died in the night. My CEO tells me that his associate was with him, said, well, you think they're poor enough for us to help? Mm -hmm. um, you know, obviously. <laughs> yeah. So what they did is they, they helped them create Bagda Enterprises, which made rope and twine from the native hemp. Oh, and that's what you're holding in your hand? I have here mm. uh, one of their many products that's... Uh, Looks that's, like a trivet, is it? It, it is actually <laughs> a scrub, a washcloth, oh, oh. a natural hand washcloth. And those are very effective. Yeah. You use those. Yeah, yes. good, good uh, exfoliators <laughs> and such. Yeah. Um, and that was, as I said, decades ago. He started to work at 10,000 Villages, and maybe 20 years later, he went back to the village of Bagda. Well, now there's a road there. Mm. And you could see that the roofs of the village, I mean, you just, just looking at the roofs, you could see tin roofs and think they're much better. And there's Nani Bala all these years later. And he's talking to her. And now she's the the manager of this, the, the all-women management team of this group. And they're obviously more prosperous and they're obviously healthier. And uh, she meets Nani Bala's daughter, and, uh, who's one of the managers. And... He remembers, didn't you have another daughter? And he says, oh, yes, we don't see her as often. She's a doctor now. Oh, she, a great so story. In, in one generation from mm. starving to sending their kids to, to school to be physicians. Uh, so it, fair trade can have an enormous... Generational impact. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Transformative generational impact. It can't change the whole world in a day, but it can change little parts of it. That's right. Yeah. And one person at a time. Yeah. If you're just tuning in, this is Callie Crossley under the radar with Callie Crossley. I'm here with Glenn Whitten. You just heard him, Dave Spandorfer, and Jules Pieri. And we're talking about gift giving for the greater good, gifts that give back. Jules, you said something in uh, talking with uh, my producer, Andreas Wahi, about legacy and how that has uh, turned out to be a part of this conscious uh, capitalism in that 
young people are coming to the table thinking about not just what will I do, but what will I leave for the world? And that has drawn you to or brought you to a lot of these makers and innovators. Yeah, so it's really interesting when you see a business plan from a millennial entrepreneur, quite often you can't even tell if it's for-profit or not-for-profit because those lines aren't that meaningful to them. They support capitalism and for-profit and they expect to create a sustainable business. But the greater impact is equally important to them. So it can read like a non-profit business when you see these um, pitches from these companies. But here's what's happening. Whereas it used to take somebody aging to think of legacy. The boomers right now are thinking age uh, all about legacy, their impact on the world, the footprint they leave. These kids today are born like they're 80 years old already. Hmm. Like at 18, they think that way. And it's the first time in American history that two very large generations are colliding and sharing values, not conflicting over values, sharing values. There's an awful lot of strength to work with there. And so when I see, you know, negative trends in the world, I, I remember that. I remember that I see this and feel this every day, whether it's our young makers and older customers or vice versa. We have makers who are grandparents as well, veterans, um, people from all walks of life creating products. But they need us. They need us to care. Um, they need us to be mindful and conscious consumers so that companies like Dave's can thrive. Um, he needs people to care about these things. And again, go to the retailers who do as well. And obviously, that's what, what we do every single day. Um, so now, each, from each of you, I want to know how you feel personally doing this work. And if you have any little story you want to use with that to tell me that, that's fine. You know, often people come and I talk to them and I say, okay, but personally, what does this mean for you? I know this is your work, but I'm just trying to get, you know, deep down. Or, and, and we're all curious about it because you could be doing something else, actually, each of you, in different ways. So, Dave, I'll start with you. Yeah. I, I mean, with Johnji, I feel so lucky every day I can wake up and really never work. You know, and, and by never work, I mean, yes, I go to the office. Yes, we're spending long hours in the office. But what we're doing at Janji never feels like it's work. You know, there's a, there's a saying for, for people's life, like, you know, you, you learn, then you earn, then you return. Well, we want to do all three at once. We want to do that while we're creating impact both globally and locally here in Boston at our office in Union Square in Somerville. And, and doing so means empowering people with clean water projects and empowering people by getting them to run. And with the world today, uh, in which there are a lot of problems, in which uh, retail has had, you know, not the best press recently, I think people do want stories. People need stories, and people crave impact. And around this holiday season, I think to be able to do that with every time someone buys some Janja gear, every time someone we see someone wearing it, is pretty profound, and it's amazing. And there's no other time we could have done this besides you know, this era in which we live. Well, good. Glenn Wooden of 10,000 Villages? Well, I, I think of myself as being lucky. Um, I had been in in book selling, various bookstores, so I, I, and I'd been a shopkeeper, essentially, for years. And about 11 years ago, I applied for a job at 10,000 Villages and started as an assistant manager and, and, and later manager, obviously. And, and 
it's the it's what I already knew how to do, but instead of uh, increasing shareholder value every day, which I, I guess is fine, I'm helping people, people around the world. I'm 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 fighting global poverty just by doing retail, and it's it's a lot more fun when you connect with a person and tell them about why it's important what they're buying and whether it's somebody who already is 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 in the store because they're a conscientious consumer mm-hmm. or you're connecting with them and make and they're realizing for the first time that they can change the world with a very small purchase it's exciting to see that happen in the in the face and the mind of of someone that you're that you're selling earrings to it, so I'm I'm just a lucky guy. Jules Fieri of the Gromit. Well, I kind of grew up on the wrong side of tracks in Detroit, and my dad was an auto worker. My mom uh, initially was a bank teller, then homemaker, and these are folks who didn't have a lot of uh, the young young people in my office would call it agency, like ability to impact or change the world. And I read every autobiography and biography in my Detroit public high, uh, elementary school, and. I was young enough. It was a perfect time to read these things because I read these things and said, I don't want to be famous, but I want to be worth a book. Like I want to do something that would make a difference. And I didn't know I'd be an entrepreneur. I had no idea what that would become. And it took me a long time to realize that that would be it. But recently, Ace Hardware made an investment in the grommet and people thought I'd be riding off into the sunset. And I'm, I like re-upped, you know, doubled down. I mean, this is my life's work. And um, there's a joy in creating opportunity for people. We get love letters from various grommet makers literally every week. I mean, I, I saw one being read today that we're the most impactful thing that happened to their business. Every single week, every, every single day, really, we get a letter like that. So that is incredibly energizing. And then just as, a, as purely as an entrepreneur, I find that really exciting because for my 100 employees, I get to show a model of how business should work. Mm. Like you can be idealistic. The minute we're cynical, it's over. We can never be that. And, and, I, and, and I express that and fight that, and there, I, I am not at all embarrassed about that. I, if we're naive, so be it, because this is worth fighting for. I have a quote in my kitchen. Um, One person can make a difference, and everyone should try. Entrepreneurship is a great way to do that. Well, I am delighted to have all three of you in the studio and hearing your stories, and I enjoy all of your quality products. I hope other people uh, have heard the stories and will um, come rushing to you as I have uh, personally supported. And I thank you for your contributions. Thank you. Thank you. Dave Spandorfer is the co-founder of Janji. Jules Pieri is the co-founder of The Gromit. And Glenn Whitten is the manager of 10,000 Villages in Downtown Crossing. Coming up, add some golden tones to your dinner table. Turmeric is trending, a grown-up twist on classic hot chocolate. And could Woburn be a new foodie hub? Our food and wine gurus give us the scoop on the latest trends. That's next. This is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. I'm Callie Crossley. I'm 
Callie Crossley, and this is Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. And now for the part of the show we call Lanyap. That's Creole for something extra. It's the holidays, which means delicious food and wine on our plates, in our wine glasses, and stuffed in our gift bags. Here to tell us the best picks for eating and drinking this holiday season are our food and wine gurus, Jonathan Alsop, founder and executive director of the Boston Wine School and author of The Wine Lover's Devotional. Welcome back, Jonathan. Hello, Callie. Glad to have you. And Amy Traverso, food editor at Yankee Magazine, co-host of WGBH's Weekends with Yankee and author of The Apple Lover's Cookbook. Hello again, Amy. Hi. So this is a fun conversation. Uh, I'm going to jump right in with you, Amy. Rye is the hot new flower in everything you say. Christmas cookies, breads, and pasta. Why rye? What's happening there? I think whole grains are still really hot, and it's like we're moving down the line. You know, we did farro. We did quinoa, okay. which isn't really a grain. but And now rye. And, you know, rye is delicious. I mean, most of us have only had it in breads, but yeah. it, it adds a really wonderful nutty flavor to cookies. Like, if hmm. particularly something like a chocolate chip cookie or a chocolate cookie, something that would benefit from that nutty flavor Mm. profile. I wouldn't do it in a delicate, you know, shortbread or something, but I would, unless I wanted that flavor to stand out. But it really is good. And in it makes really delicious pasta. Kirkland Tap and Trotter in Cambridge, they do a rye pasta dish. I'm Mm. seeing it in more and more and more menus. And rye berries as well. Like you can take the kind of like wheat berries, you know, you can make a salad using rye berries. Yeah. Mm. So you make the pasta out of rye flour. flour, So it'd be like wheat flour, except it's rye. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, so it's not it's not um, a perfect solution for people who have celiac disease, yeah. for example, but for people who are just looking for more flavor diversity, it's perfect. Yeah. Well, oddly, rye is a big deal well, on the drinking side, too. Yeah. <laughs> I, I mean, know. speaking of rye... Uh, yeah. Rye vival! I'm I don't, telling yeah. you. Yeah. Oh, I mean, I don't know good, if this Amy, is a very total... Good. Yeah, it was a good one. <laughs> I don't know if this is a total, total coincidence, but there's also been... And this has been over the last couple of years with the rise of traditional cocktails and throwback cocktails has been this resurgence of rye whiskey, which used to be something that, you know, people just really did not drink. It was like your grandfather's grandfather's whiskey. (laughs) Um, Well, it's strong and it's not as sweet. I mean, if you were to think about the difference, you know, speaking of rye bread, you know, think of the difference between rye bread and cornbread Mm. and how much sweeter and richer Mm. and moister is cornbread. That's the difference between rye whiskey and Bourbon, mm-hmm. which is bourbon corn is whiskey, yeah, right. so it's much, that's much right. sweeter. Yeah. So we're seeing a resurgence in this rye whiskey because, to a certain degree, like wine, Americans do not have a super sweet tooth mm. when it comes to wine. And also in cocktails, people who are not huge cocktail fans, one of their complaints is cocktails are too sweet. And so one of the ways to make a cocktail less sweet is... You know, instead of making a bourbon Mm -hmm. Manhattan, make a rye Manhattan because that's going to be drier as in technically less sweet. And I think that's part of what's made it also more popular is that it's just not quite as sweet, too. It makes a little drier cocktail. With the exception on the wine side of sweetness, you know, those blush wines people like because, and they're going for Moscato. That's a big, you know, that hasn't well, died. You know, you know, simultaneous <laughs> simultaneous with the the soaring, I mean, two, you know, mm-hmm. one of the big stories of 
2017 and the last couple of years is the increase in the sales of rosé right. wine. But the rosé is not dry. It's not dry rosé. Yeah, yeah. And while dry rosé sales have been rising, sweet rosé sales, white Zinfandel, mm-hmm. white Merlot, that kind of thing. A.K.A. Fall, college dorm fall, Yes, wine. thank falling. you. Yes. Those sales have been falling in parallel with these other rosés rising. Sorry, those winemakers. I can't stand that stuff. Anyway, They can make dry rosé. Yeah, I don't know. I love dry rosé. And I've been, believe me, I guzzled a whole bunch of it. I put some winemakers' children through school Mm. (laughs) this summer. (laughs) (laughs) Amy, so I'm um, fascinated with the turmeric seasoning that I'm seeing everywhere. The golden lattes and other rubs and stuff. Yeah, know? it's like 2017's answer to acai. You know, it's sort yes. of the miracle anti-inflammatory, you know, antioxidant that we're all getting obsessed with now. And this time of year, it's nice because it is a really warming spice. It's a rhizome, kind of like ginger, that you can grate that in a powdered form, just like ginger. And it adds... Uh, a lot of foods are colored with, if you want a mm-hmm. natural kind of golden color, you can use turmeric for that. Mm. And it not only is anti-inflammatory, but actually sort of has a gentle blood thinning effect, which won't trouble you, won't be an issue if you're eating it or drinking it in a latte. But if you're taking the capsule form or pill form and you're ta- also taking anticoagulants, it's actually oh, really? it's that you can actually oh, internally huh. bleed if you overdo well, let's it. Not do that. But that is not an issue <laughs> yeah. with food, with turmeric in food. Mm. And, and yeah, I mean, I think I sometimes will throw a little extra turmeric in a chili or something just to boost my levels. And it's a nice thing to add to your food in the winter. I, I add it to my rice because I like the That's color. Great. Yeah. And it yeah. gives you a little something. You know, I just like it. Mm-hmm. So, and I mean, it has a little taste, but it doesn't yeah. have a huge amount of taste. Yeah, yeah. I'm trying to think yeah. of the flavor. It's sort of a, it's like an earthy spicy it's it's not spicy as in hot but it's yeah. an, like a very earthy spice yeah. it has like it's not like yeah, it's ginger not a where it has it's a not a green no flavor. no it's not herbaceous um, it's no yeah. it's more leaning towards like a curryish not, yeah not, not it's not like curry, the deep but... notes in a curry it's yes. usually in a curry yes. blend and yeah. it's you know so many people use it as sort of an affordable alternative to saffron even though the flavors are totally different mm. Yeah, I'm seeing it in a lot of places. It's it's, it's really hot right now. <laughs> I'm talking with Amy Traverso. You just heard her and Jonathan Alsup, and they're my food and wine gurus. And we're talking about the food and wine trends for this holiday season. So, Amy, first with you, you're saying Japan and its influence is trickling into the Boston food scene. Yeah, I mean, mm-hmm. I think most people who are seriously following food, you know, obviously Denmark is still very hot, but Greece. I think— And Greece is still Mm. very big, Mm -hmm. but I think in general, a lot of people say the best French food in the world right now is being served in Japan. Some of the best Italian food is is found in Japan. (laughs) Some of the best coffee there. I, I was following a friend on Instagram who's in Japan right now, and there are these coffee shops in Japan that have such a cult following that, and these baristas will make seven espressos a day and it's a five minute extraction (laughs) and people wait in line to get these perfect espressos Mm. so there's a lot i mean it you got to take a food tour to japan for sure but we're seeing it you know trickle down into boston i mean we've got a bunch of restaurants that are either we're just seeing flavors here and there like at pammy's in cambridge they do a a berkshire pork chop with a pancetta dashi which is like a broth Mm. Cultivar does yakitori grilled beets with uh, mm. Japanese seasoning. And then you see restaurants like Pagu, which is a Japanese-Spanish fusion mm-hmm. restaurant. 
Ruka, which is a Japanese Peruvian restaurant from the folks at Ivan. So, and Coolidge Corner is actually getting a, a new Japanese, mm. it's the first American outpost of a Japanese tea house sort of small Ooh. chain. Wow. Yep. It's called oh. uh, Gensuen, and they specialize in green tea in particular. It's going to be food like matcha croissants, matcha tiramisu, tempura, hand rolls, onigiri, really, and lots of emphasis on green tea and matcha. And the the ramen thing is just really hot. We're not not talking ramen in a bag. No, or in a bag. We're not talking like (laughs) undergraduate era ramen. (laughs) This is like, like, and a lot of these techniques you're talking about, the broth. Right. You know, the things that people are starting to do with broth and a fried egg on everything, that's all derived from this ramen. Which, uh, and there's talk about standing in line. I mean, there's yeah. a place yeah. in, near me in Porter Square I've never been able to get to because yes. I look at that line. Yes. And I'm like, okay, one day. But, you know. There's a new place, Ruckus, in Chinatown, where not only are they making great broths, but they're they're making their noodles, which is kind of less common. A lot mm-hmm. of places will fly in noodles from oh, Japan. Right. Yeah. So oh, Ruckus is worth good. checking out. Yeah. Well, you're spending a lot of time in China, not Japan, um, yes. Jonathan. And there, I'm fascinated for that mulled wine is the big deal yes. now in the season, yes. which I love here, but I couldn't imagine in China. Well, it is such a challenge to get people to, well, one, to either put red wine in the refrigerator if they'd like it to be a little cooler. Mm -hmm. People are really resistant to that idea. And then the whole notion of heating up wine is an idea that we have a hard time warming up to. (laughs) Uh, But one of the things I always think of when I think about winter in Shanghai, I always think about mulled wine. Every bookshop Every coffee shop, every little store has got some little hot pot going with a pot of whatever. You know, there's no right and wrong way to do this. It's red wine, it's lemon, it's orange, clove, cinnamon cinnamon Mm -hmm. sticks, Mm -hmm. some black peppercorn, white peppercorn. You know, and just keep it nice and warm all day and just... And it smells it's good. It's a delightful... It, yeah. sm- it smells great and it's just a delightful, delightful... It's one It's one of my real wintertime connections. When I think about Christmas time, my connection is to the, the least religious nation on Earth. <laughs> okay. Which is China. <laughs> okay. But oddly is China and mm-hmm. this experience of this mulled wine, like, on every corner. So I really urge people to do that. And don't use expensive wine. Yeah, no, use right. regular mainstream... Uh, under $10 wine is totally, totally fine. You don't have to use an expensive wine. It's just really about creating a, a vibe and doing something creative with wine and something we don't normally do here. And of the season. It. But I also want you to speak to this other trend I heard about um, before you open this red wine, mm. because you are a red wine guy. Hot spiked cocoa with Zinfandel. Yes. Now, this is Ooh. new to me, yes. Zinfandel and hot cocoa. Yes, this yeah. emerged. This actually emerged for the first time last holiday season. Okay. And you know, so let's, you know what, uh, Callie, <laughs> yeah. let's not, we really do not have to make this into like more rocket science than it is. It's hot chocolate with wine. Okay. okay? That's really <laughs> all it is. Here's the recipe. Make hot chocolate, <laughs> add wine. Okay. And it just but is... But why uh, is it so hot now? I mean, uh, not, no pun intended. Well, <laughs> well, I why is it so hot? Well, I mean, I think people are, you know, as much as I complain about what a challenge it is to get people to come to new ideas, young people, young wine lovers, millennials who are free from a lot of these 
Like, Callie, I mean, honestly, I mean, a man of my age in station to put, like, wine into hot chocolate, I can't have, I can't have my people see that happening. But, but, but young people, young people who are not affected by these ideas, they say, look, I like hot chocolate. Look, I like wine. What can go wrong? And, and they are much more open to putting these things together and trying these new things. So, I'm going to try it. Um, this is, I've not tried it. It yeah. looks kind of interesting. I have to it's a lot of fun. I would think port before I would think Oh, Zinfandel. interesting. Now, well, that would be... Well, port is fine, or, or again, like yeah. a really ripe... You know, Zinfandel can be really ripe, almost sweet-like. Right, right. So, yeah, port would be good. Port would be really good. And yeah. just any kind of, like, mainstream port. You don't have to spend yes, money, get yes. a vintage port right. or anything. Mm, um, I'm going to try that. Yeah. That's interesting. Well, yeah. I think people are also experimenting. Like, if you go to um, Taza Chocolate, I think you can get, like, less sweet hot chocolate yes. blends. Mm-hmm. And so it would make sense that, you know, a less sweet yeah. wine would pair well with that. I'm Callie Crossley, and you're listening to Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. My guests are Jonathan Alsop and Amy Traverso. They're Under the Radar's food and wine experts, and we're discussing seasonal culinary trends and holiday food and wine picks. So you got a red wine here, Jonathan. What is it? I do. You know, one one of the things that comes up this time of year, as you can imagine, Mm. is tips for how to buy wine for the wine lover in your life, or what's your gifting strategy for the wine lover in your life. And there's a lot of different things that we do and a lot of different things that we suggest. I have essentially two approaches. Is One, if you know what their favorite wine is, just do that. This is what the wine lover in your life wants, wine. Or a bottle of your favorite wine. See, and I prefer this strategy because if I give someone <laughs> if I give someone a bottle of my favorite wine, in my in my opinion, it's a win-win situation all around. Okay. What if they don't ask you to drink some? Either, either way, I know they got a great bottle of wine that I would be proud and excited to drink. So what I brought here is essentially you know, people ask me all the time, what is your favorite wine or what is your um, trapped on a desert island wine? Mm-hmm. And the answer for me is Chateau Neuf du Pop. This mm-hmm. is incredible. It's very Chateau good. Chateau Neuf du Pop, a French red wine from the south of France, probably the most famous of the southern oh, French really good. reds. <laughs> You know, not cheap, but not nearly as expensive as expensive red Bordeaux. Yeah, what does that or mean? Like we like numbers. Yeah. Yeah. We, like, we want well, some numbers. So this, is, so, so this one, the Prince de Courtesan, <laughs> mm-hmm. and there's a ton of different great Chateau Neuf de Pops out there. Prince de Courtesan, this is about 30. Okay. okay. All right. And maybe they go up into the 60s and 70s. I'm just comparing them with wines that, you know, start at 75 and go to infinity. Yes. You know, these are a little bit more, they're at least a little bit attainable for real wine lovers. Yeah, you said but, it's, a, it's a blend? Yes. Yeah. Yes, it's a classic blend from the south of France mm-hmm. of three famous southern French hot climate mm-hmm. uh, grapes that really love the sun, Syrah, Grenache, and Mourvedre. And one of the things that I love about this wine, and mm. you tell me if you feel the same way about mm. it, is we make wine so that we can transport it, you know, take it to other places and, you know, transport it across the dimension of time, but really interesting, really great wines, they transport us. That when you smell it, when you taste it, 
can you not smell the country, the countryside? Jonathan, you're a poet. Fa- you don't know the, it. The, 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 <laughs> you know, right. it, it, this takes, you know, you know, we transport it, but it ends up transporting very us. very good. And this is just one of the things that I really, that I just love about this wine. And I'd be proud to receive this as a gift. And it's just a great gifting, uh, just a great uh, gift wine. This. It's really it's juicy. Beautiful. It's very good. Yeah. And yeah. Again, it's very comforting, I have mm-hmm. to say. It would transport yeah. me to my couch where I'd be happy <laughs> to be a sconce there. <laughs> <laughs> Sometimes transport me to my Barca lounger. <laughs> That's Just great. while we're talking about it, <laughs> um, Amy, um, this would go well with some pasta I have in mind, and I I, I hear that pasta is making a comeback everywhere I go. Anywhere you yeah. brought up Pammy's before, I was yeah, there eating pasta. Great pasta. That's a restaurant in Cambridge. Yeah, they do yeah. a yeah. they do a. Bolognese. Did you have the bolognese or the goat? No, I had something else that I don't remember now, but it was a pasta thing. Yeah. So good. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Pasta craft is the way we talk about it. Pasta craft. (laughs) They're really mastering their pasta craft. It's a really big deal. (laughs) Okay. Uh, No wonder they hate us. I know. It's so horrible. I don't say it. I'm just saying it. It's said. Okay. (laughs) I mean, the two places that are, I think, seen as kind of the epicenters of this movement, uh, Julia and Benedetto, which are Mm. both. Uh, mm, sort of sister mm. restaurants. Julia is fantastic. It's so good, yeah. and you know, and and it's it's new shapes that you haven't seen. It's new flowers like rye flower mm. or you know emmer or things that are not as common. Yeah, Pammy's, even Baba, which mm. is, to some extent is a chain, and mm-hmm. you know, it, it's an outpost at least, but. They are making really wonderful homemade. I've had some great pasta there, and I think it's one of the better value restaurants in Boston. There's uh, Mita in the South End, which is doing fantastic pasta. Semolina Kitchen out in Medford for the people from Dave's Fresh Pasta are doing. And Dave's is great for sort of the butternut squash ravioli Mm -hmm. that you bring home and cook. You know, this is more of the pasta, sort of higher pasta experience. So, yeah, it's a good time to be eating pasta. And even places like Cultivar are doing homemade pasta and really emphasizing that on their menu. And I've been to Italy and Terra. I had great. some great yeah. pasta there too. So yeah. I, and I didn't realize I was in the middle of a, a whole resurgence, as we're saying. Yeah. It's interesting that there is, and maybe people say in troubled times, people go to comfort. So, mm, so comedies, you know, horror films on, yes. the, on the pop culture side, but then foods that comfort, wine and drink that comforts, mm. it makes sense. And I yeah. think the fear of carbs has worn off somewhat. Yeah. And actually, yeah. of all the carbs, the pasta, the glycemic index of pasta is more favorable than other products so you know well also if you ingest a lot of green smoothies you can have room for the carbs or like turmeric <laughs> pasta how's there that we'll combine two trends <laughs> there you go um gotta mention jonathan that sales of sparkling wine but particularly prosecco mm. are really up as you've written about but you're mentioning something that's happening to prosecco so it's about to be changed please tell us about it well yes so <laughs> You know, a lot of people, and we'll be talking about this for a while, I'm sure, a lot of people are really focusing on, you know, the effects of the wildfires in California Mm. wine country. But while that was going on, Europe experienced its worst harvest in more than 35 years. Back in the spring, while the grapes were just in their flowering stage, grapes are remarkably hardy Mm -hmm. for a crop. But there are times when they're vulnerable, very, very vulnerable. And one of those times is when they're flowering. Mm. And last spring, at the worst possible time, was hail and sleet Mm. and freezing rain. And this is in the spring. And so now, six months later, out of the EU, we have the smallest harvest 
in 36 years. There's going to be a lot of effects of that, a lot of follow-on effects from that. Uh, but one of the main things that's happened already is that for the 2017 vintage, you know, which is just harvested and just being made now, Prosecco, for the first time, is allowing the blending in of other non-Prosecco grapes. Mm. And it's something that, that they just have to do in order to make enough Prosecco to be viable. But what's that going to taste like? Well, first of all, we we don't know. Mm. Uh, what, what, What we know is that Prosecco, as we have known it up to this point, is going to change in an important and utter way. We may end up liking that change, mm-hmm. right? That change may end up tasting. It may that may that may mean more better tasting, yummy prosecco. So we may like that. And prosecco's not the only wine that allows other grapes from other regions to be blended in. Mm-hmm. German sparkling wine, German Zecht by the German wine laws, you can blend in either even grapes from mm. other countries. Oh, wow. So Zecht okay. does not even have to be 100% German, if you can believe that. So Prosecco is not the only wine that allows this to happen. So it's not inherently 100% bad, but boy, what a huge shift. Yeah. Um, it's, just a, yeah. it's just a bit, and, and it's because of the weather something that is just completely outside of our control. Well, speaking um, of that, the holidays and weather, I mean, mm. the, the vanilla supply, the world vanilla oh. supply is down because of the hurricanes. So expect, <gasps> That's right. yeah, That's expect the, vanilla yeah. to get more expensive and hoard it if you have it. Okay. Oh if you God. have beans, you can... I, what I do is just take beans. I, fa- I found beans even at Trader Joe's. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I buy them where I can, and I put them in a bottle of vodka, and I make my own uh, vanilla extract. Uh, it has to sit for months to really yeah. come to flavor, but now's the time to start wow. doing that. I had not thought about that. You're, you're true. Yeah. That's true. What about Mexican vanilla? It's a little bit different, but it's yes. Still, yeah. The supply should be. It's more the island vanilla. Right. That's the, oh my yeah. goodness! Yeah, you're right. Um, I just wanted to note that with the sparkling wine, particularly Prosecco, the sales are up 48% yeah. from last year, which is kind of amazing. That may be the millennial-driven thing as well. It's a, <laughs> yeah. it's a millennial-driven thing. Okay. And that number about the sales being up 48%, mm-hmm. that's not just Prosecco. That's Italian sparkling okay. wine. In general. So Prosecco yeah. is, as they as they say in business school, the tip of the spear. Yeah. But there's a ton of other, the Moscato, yeah. sparkling Moscato, Lambrusco, right. and just a ton of other Italian sparklers, too, that aren't technically Prosecco. Okay. Let me get to uh, the new hot food suburb, you say, which nobody's going to believe you. I know. Uh, I'm but, so ahead but, of the but, curve but, but, but give us the surprise. <laughs> <laughs> so here, okay, let me just, can I do a little build yeah. up? Okay, so realtors will tell you if you want to know where to buy, and obviously Boston's tough. It's expensive and people are looking for where's the good bargain town that isn't going to be totally Snoresville. Follow the Starbucks because they do a lot of research where they put their mm-hmm. stores. They do a lot of demographic research. In this case, I would say follow the restaurant openings too. Drum roll, Woburn. Wow. Woburn. And I think you can say it really started with the Randuan, who is the star bartender. has been like, he's like the darling of GQ and Esquire and a ton of press. Mm-hmm. He started Baldwin Bar and Baldwin and Sons, which are both in a colonial mansion in Woburn where his parents run Sichuan Garden. Ah, so okay. it started as a Chinese restaurant. This kid had a huge interest and talent for cocktails and his 
two bars are absolute destinations. So I think seeing that gravitational pull to Woburn, now the team behind Yvonne's, which is like one of the sexiest, hottest restaurants Mm. in Boston right now, they just opened Matadora, which is a Spanish restaurant. It's a lot of like wood-fired cooking. It's in a Hilton, but it's like really legit cooking and really interesting menu. Lord Hobo Brewing Company, which is, you know, a really kind of cultish Cambridge Cambridge bar slash, you know, uh, Daniel Lanigan is kind of a cult brewer to some extent for many people. They've just opened a brewery in Woburn. And then there's, do you remember the little um, Mexican restaurant that was in a gas station at the base of Beacon Hill? Yes, what happened to that? Opened in Woburn. Oh my God. (laughs) So I'm just going to say, if you're you're in the market and you're a foodie and you're looking for a good deal, check out Woburn. One odd food thing that I, well, different food thing that maybe you can respond to. Had you heard about Trader Joe's almond nog? Yes. I'm uh, so sick of the almond milk thing. I, don't I know, know. It's but just... it's now, this seems to cap it, right? <laughs> it does. It does. But I'm going to one-up that. Okay. Be- because Trader Joe's is selling something that I think is better than that. the okay. most remarkable okay. holiday. It is turkey and stuffing flavored potato chips. Oh, my God. I'm not okay. kidding. Okay. I'm not kidding. Okay. So well, that's a different stuffing. one. It probably just has, like, bell seasoning on it, okay. basically. But it's it's oh, I. But it's so fun. I mean, Trader right. Joe's is so much fun for <laughs> yes. tracking food trends. Because yes. they're pretty forward. Yes, I mean, they are. Yes, partly because they they're West Coast. Yes. And so, okay. Yeah. I much, okay. I much prefer yeah. it to the soy nog, Exactly. <laughs> All right. Yeah. Okay. I got it. Uh, uh, I want to squeeze in this other odd drink, orange wine. Yes. What is that? So winemakers are always looking for new ways to make new wine and new things to do differently with wine. So the difference between red and white wine is that red wine is fermented with its skins. That's where the color comes Mm. from. That's where the texture comes from. White wine almost never is. White wine, you press out the juice, you ferment the juice, and you don't use the skins. Orange wine is white grapes made in the red wine style. So what would happen if you fermented white grapes as if they were red grapes and made white wine in the red wine style? But you say it's odd. It is odd. It (laughs) is utterly odd. It's the kind of thing that, first of all, we're not used to because we haven't done this in centuries. And one of the things that happens is you really get this real presence of the rind, of the peel, of the pit of the Uh, solid part of the grape. It's like the difference between taking a bite of an apple Mm -hmm. and eating an apple rind. Like if you peeled an apple and then ate the peel, you would have like much more of a balance of that peel flavor and texture. That's what happens. Normally in white wine, it's about the fruit that comes through and that fruit flavor radiates through the transparency of the white wine. With orange wine... What radiates through is the grape skin. I got it. I just wanted to be on the cutting edge. Totally different emotional quality. I mean, it's worth trying, but it is utterly new. You know what's a good place to try it is Central Bottle. Central Bottle, Bottle. yes. They they have good ones. Central Bottle, yeah. 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 Okay. I just wanted to put it in. We like to bring up all the trends so people know what's happening. Thank you both for joining me today. And happy holidays. Thank you for having us. Happy holidays. (laughs) Thank you so much. Enjoy it. (laughs) Jonathan Alsop is the founder and executive director of the Boston Wine School and the author of The Wine Lover's Devotional. And Amy Traverso is the food editor at Yankee Magazine, the co-host of WGBH's Weekends with Yankee, and the author of The Apple Lover's Cookbook. 
Well, that's it for this edition of Under the Radar with Callie Crossley. Join us next Sunday at 6 p.m. for the stories you may have missed. In the meantime, you can find our show, links to stories we discussed today, and bonus content on the web at news.wgbh.org slash UTR. Listen to our show on the WGBH app and take UTR with you. Subscribe to our podcast on iTunes. Be sure to connect with us on social media. Follow me on Twitter at Callie Crossley and like us at Facebook.com slash Under the Radar WGBH. Our engineer is Doug Sugarts. Andrea Swahi is our producer. Under the Radar is a production of WGBH. <laughs>